This is World Lutheran News Digest, an audio news magazine bringing you a look at significant events in worldwide Lutheranism. WLN Digest is produced through the facilities of Worldwide KFUO, a broadcast ministry of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Today on World Lutheran News Digest... I'm World Lutheran News Digest host Kip Allen. Science and religion. We often hear that the two don't mix. We also hear that Christians in general, and Lutherans in particular, are, quote, anti-science, unquote. Not true, says Lutheran scientist Michael Dorson. He's a renowned toxicologist and is a believer as well as a scientist. Dorson has dedicated himself to demonstrating that nature and the Bible are in accord. He's written several books in which he uses the scientific method to investigate biblical accounts. For example, his book, Messiah's Star, shows how people in Christ's day would have interpreted an amazing series of visible planetary conjunctions that only occurred at the time of Jesus' birth. Dr. Dorson provides other examples of the Bible and science going hand in glove. Michael Dorson is my guest today on World Lutheran News Digest. And now today's fast track. The Trump administration rolled on its new sex education priorities this week with an emphasis on abstinence and other sexual risk avoidance strategies. A Title X grant application released last week prioritizes the types of programs that the abortion chain Planned Parenthood and other abortion groups do not offer. Pro-abortion groups criticize the new goals, claiming the government wants to take away birth control and push religious beliefs on people through abstinence-based programs. Grantees may not provide abortions with the funds. Planned Parenthood quietly opened a large new abortion facility in January in Illinois to take advantage of a new state law that forces taxpayers to fund abortions in that state. A new facility is located in Flossmoor, just south of Chicago and near the Indiana border. It sells abortion drugs up to 10 weeks of pregnancy and surgical abortions up to 20 weeks. The pro-abortion legislation passed last year, allowing taxpayer funding of abortions in Illinois and establishing the land of Lincoln as a safe haven for women seeking abortions. Flossmoor Mayor Paul Brown, who supports Planned Parenthood, said that city officials did not know anything about the new abortion facility until a few days before it opened. He said the secrecy was disrespectful to the community. Mississippi moved a step closer yesterday to passing the United States' most restrictive abortion law when a state Senate committee approved a bill banning most procedures after 15 weeks of gestation. The measure now heads to the full Senate after passage by the Public Health and Welfare Committee. Current state law bans abortions at 20 weeks after conception. A vote is expected in the Republican-controlled Senate by March the 7th. The bill passed the State House of Representatives earlier this month. San Jose State University students are protesting a measure that may bring abortion pills to their campus after the California Senate approved a bill requiring the state's public universities and colleges to offer abortion drugs at their health centers. I just can't imagine it, Spartans for Life Vice President Mariana Miranda said. She added that she feels horrible thinking that her peers who could have terribly painful and dangerous abortive procedures alone in their dorms, yet the bill passes to the governor's desk. The bill requires the state's community colleges and public universities to provide women with abortion pills for up to 10 weeks of pregnancy so that they don't have to travel to get the pills. 
Last week, a Christian nonprofit group filed a federal lawsuit against Georgia University for restricting a pro-life display to less than eight one-thousandths percent of the campus while allowing an LBGT Pride Day event to take place across all the campus's seven free speech zones. Usted está escuchando el resumen de noticias Mundo Luterano. This is World Lutheran News Digest. I'm World Lutheran News Digest host Kip Allen. My guest today is Dr. Michael Dorson, who is a scientist and has a lot to say about both science and Christianity. Dr. Dorson, welcome to the program. Well, it's good to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me. Could you let the audience know a little bit about yourself? You've got quite a fascinating background. <laughs> well, perhaps not that fascinating. I'm a uh, Cincinnati native, uh, born and raised in Cincinnati. Went to uh, Catholic parochial schools, and a, then a uh, Catholic high school. Went to a Lutheran college uh, at Wittenberg University. I graduated from there, met the love of my life, who was a Lutheran girl, and we got married up in a small Lutheran church in mid-Ohio. And uh, all along those lines, or along that time frame, I you know, developed an interest in science, biology, and then toxicology, and and uh, finally got my uh, doctorate in toxicology from the University of Cincinnati, and and went on to work for the Environmental Protection Agency, and uh, I've been at it for 38 years in different uh, roles, but uh, hopefully growing in both my uh, Christian background and understanding, and also my scientific. Um, erudition or learning i suppose well you do have quite a scientific background i know that you've been uh you've head of a nonprofit organization uh, you've worked with various governments and at one point you were actually nominated to the epa that's right uh, last uh, summer i got nominated by president trump to be the assistant administrator for the office of chemical safety and pollution prevention within the epa that's the group that looks at the chemicals in our households and our pesticides that we use uh, and, and set safe levels for these various chemicals and make sure that the public is protected from the exposures that we might get from them. Well, one of the things that uh, intrigued me about going over your biology, your biology, excuse me, your, <laughs> your biography, right. is Lutherans are often accused of, uh, Christians for that matter, are often accused of being anti-science. And yet here you are, beyond any shadow of a doubt, a scientist, one who's actually relatively renowned. And yet you have also managed to write several books uh, expressing your Christian faith, but doing it, I think, in scientific terms. One of the books that really came to my mind here, uh, going over the ones that you've read, uh, written, is a one called Messiah's Star. And what you did in this was you, as I understand it, you attempted to unwrap the idea of the star of Bethlehem, but using a scientific method, using computers, using uh, software, uh, using various uh, basic scientific techniques to determine what it was. Can you tell me a little bit about this, how you went about it, and what you discovered? Well, yeah, it was uh, a fascinating uh, thing. We, we first started with a Bible study about uh, the star of Bethlehem several years ago. Uh, and then we went to, um, uh, there was a website, uh, a very famous website that I'm blanking on right now. It's rather embarrassing. But, um, uh, and we went to the website and we showed the video uh, at our Bible study, and that would generate a lot of discussion. 
And one of the things that prompted was a reading of the Bible again and, and to see if there were other events in the heavens that could be uh, matched to the Bible. And myself and some of the other folks in the Bible study, we found that, well, and indeed, there were other events going on uh, in the uh, astronomical world um, at the time uh, that could be mapped to events in the Bible. And it wasn't as if... Um, you know, people haven't been looking at the Bible for a long time, but what we had, you know, now that we didn't have uh, before is we had computer software that allowed us to know what the skies uh, look like on Earth, and in, in particular in Bethlehem and in, in Jerusalem, at the time when Jesus was born. So we can actually look at... Um, the various events in the heavens and see if they match to the Bible. And, you know, other people have done this. It isn't like just my work itself. There's, you know, lots of references in, in, my, in, our, in our book here. But the other thing that most people didn't, didn't bring to the table is they didn't bring to the uh, table the biology of human birth. And so, for instance, Rick Larson's website, that's the gentleman that had the, the website I couldn't remember. I apologize, uh, Mr. Larson. Um, but what he didn't bring to the table was the biology. And so, for instance, you know, if it's a human birth, Jesus was fully human and fully divine. A human birth uh, it has to be like maybe a nine-month pregnancy. Well, there is one a set of matching astronomical events that's exactly nine months apart. And so that gives you the impression or maybe the support for one event being associated with conception and one event being associated with perhaps the birth. And uh, putting all those things together was fascinating. And, of course, we worked this through our Lutheran Bible study, and we've had lots of book clubs and, and different events where I've gained additional insights. And we'll probably be doing a, um, a, a like a version two uh, or volume two or something like that in the near future, because there have been some additional insights that have been brought forward. They're just absolutely fascinating. Well, what are some of these specific events that you're talking about? In in the review I was reading of uh, Messiah's Star, uh, some of these in, some of these uh, weird, if you will, uh, constellations or configurations in the sky have only appeared once. Is that well, right? Well, yeah, it's it's amazing. If you see, as a scientist, you approach. If if you, if I flip a coin one time, I expect to half the time to get heads, right? If I flip it five times in a row, I expect to get five heads in a row. Only about three percent of the time, and so you can take the events in the heavens and line them up, and certain events only occur. Um, you know, if you line each one up, like one out of five times, one out of thirty. And it goes through like that. Pretty soon you get this whole string of like 12 events, and they only occur like once in every 4 billion years. Wow. Well, that's, that's a pretty uh, rare occurrence, even though uh, a couple years ago we had, uh, we had at least three of these events occur simultaneously two years ago. So that was pretty exciting. We had a party at church when that happened. It was really it was a good time. <laughs> Well, I, I look at the story of the uh, three magi, and uh, the magi actually back in those days were uh, sort of a combination of, 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 of astrologers and magicians. They definitely studied the stars. We know that the stars had a very, very important role in the ancient world. Right. And uh, so these three men might actually have, have been studying there, seeing something had happened, and got together and said, whoa, wait a minute. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. So the Magi from the East, so 
most of the scholars that study this have have concluded that it was probably from the Babylon area. And why? Well, first of all, the Bible says that they're from the east. And the second thing, which is probably a little bit more telling, is that we know Babylon was a uh, hotbed, <laughs> probably the wrong word, but there was a lot of Jewish influence there. Why? Because that's the Babylon captivity. Uh, we had uh, Daniel was there. He was a senior uh, person in the in the um, the administration at the time. Uh, there was Magi that learned uh, from him. You know, the Magi were probably the proto scientists uh, of the time, and they studied the, you know how the stars moved. Um, and so they were quite familiar with, perhaps, familiar with uh, Daniel's prophecy of the Messiah. And so they would be perhaps looking for signs in the heavens that foretold this uh, prophecy. And so, you know, what, did it exactly happen that way? Well, perhaps not. Um, but, of course, with this story, I mean, the story is uh, it's based in part on biological fact and in part on the Bible and, and certainly in part on, on astrology. Uh, Astrology. No, I'm sorry, astronomy. But it's also, you know, I had to fill in some of the, you know, the conversations. So did this exactly happen this way? Well, probably not. But uh, I guess a little bit of a poetic license there to, to try to weave all this together. Well, what were some of the distinct signs in the sky that these three magi might have seen? Well, they had a, there was a series of conjunctions that happened. Any one of them, not any any surprising. Uh, the first conjunction that happened um, that I thought was associated with the Bible was the conjunction of Mercury and Saturn on what would have been May 19th of the year minus 3 uh, B.C. Now, you know, by itself, it happens once every 30 years. It's not that big of a deal. But if you look at the what the planets often represented, you know, Mercury being God's messenger, or from the Jewish perspective, God's scribe, uh, Saturn being the Jewish protectorate, although they had other names as well. Um, you know, you, you might say, oh, God's scribe and Jewish protectorate. Well, you know, what was Zechariah in the temple? He was doing prayers for the Jewish nation. And we happen to know that Zechariah was in the temple that that week because we can trace back from the Bible that he was with the 8th Division. It's the Abuja Division. I'm not saying that correctly. I apologize. So we know when the Jewish New Year started, and we know when his division was working. And so we know he was in the temple. Uh, now, on that particular day, was he was he there? Perhaps not. And then if you go in time, you get another series of uh, a Jupiter-Venus conjunction, I believe, on August uh, 12th of that year, same year. And it was a very brilliant star. This is in the morning. People would say, I mean, the Magi, when they s sat down with Herod, say, we have seen his star at its arising. It uh -huh. says the star in the east, but the, the Greek word is at a We've seen a star at its arising, and we've come to worship him. So maybe that was the event uh, that, the, that the Magi saw, because believe me, the Magi at the time noticed it. There's no question you would have noticed it. It was a dramatic conjunction. Well, we know from uh, archaeologists all over the world, the, the Mesoamericans, the Chinese, uh, as you pointed out, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, all of these civilizations put great deal of stock and faith in the stars, and they were very accurate in a lot of their, uh, in a lot of their observations. Oh, absolutely. 
The Mayans in particular were incredible when it came down to their observations. They uh, Some of their observations are as accurate as anything we've come up with today. Oh, absolutely. This is, Again, these are the proto-scientists of the time, and they were very good about recording what's going on. Absolutely incredible when I look yeah. at that. And that's one of the things that's gone down through the uh, through the ages. Now, we, we Christians obviously don't believe necessarily in astrology, things like that. But certainly God makes signs. We know that. Right. Yeah. Well, that's a distinction that Larson also said. It's, it's not astrology. That's sort of where the stars kind of dictate what you should do tomorrow. Mm-hmm. No, this is astronomy. This is the science of how the planets move and, and conjunctions, of course, or the planets really aren't together. They look like they're together. But that's, you know, that's what was recorded. And, of course, the, the big conjunction that's uh, highlighted by many people, just not our, our book and our Bible study, and certainly uh, Larson has also highlighted this, was, was June 17th of the year minus two. That's ten months later from this conjunction I just described. And now Venus and Jupiter are con- in conjunction in the evening skies. And it's probably the, one of the brightest stars or brightest events in the in the sky that you know we've ever seen. And, and they were so close you couldn't tell them apart. So it really did look like one bright star. And nicely in the in the east, a full moon rises. So I was reminded of the you know the song, uh, Silent Night, Holy Night, All Is Calm, All Is Bright. Well, that night everything was bright. It had a full moon, you know, in the east, and this this huge beautiful conjunction in the west. Another one of your books also has a very scientific approach to it. This one is called The Linen Cloths, and what you're doing is you're uh, examining the Shroud of Turin. Now, we as Lutherans, I don't think we've taken a stand one way or the other on the authenticity of the Shroud of Turin. And, of course, we don't really put much stock in the concept of relics. But I was intrigued by how you describe this as a crime scene, and you oh, yeah, approached yeah. it from a forensic point of view. It reminds me of a uh, a movie that came out res- uh, recently called Risen, mm-hmm. and that stars with uh, Joseph Fiennes. He plays a uh, Roman tribune who has been assigned to uh, investigate the missing tomb, and he actually goes at it. I spoke to the uh, producer of that movie, and he said that the running joke was that uh, the working title was uh, CSI Jerusalem. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> That's perfect, yeah. <laughs> so, I haven't seen the movie, unfortunately, but... Uh, it's worth your time. Yeah, well, I will do that. So the interesting thing about that is, you, from the Roman perspective, just imagine, there's a Roman guard at the tomb, and these guys don't sleep, because if one person is caught sleeping, you know, the whole squad is, like, severely punished or executed, so no one sleeps, right? So how is it that they were all, like, dead men, you know, according to, I think, Mark... I think they, you're right. They, they were dazed. So something happened. And the, and the guy that's investigating this, you know, the Romans are going to investigate this because their soldiers are going to come back and say, listen, boss, we weren't sleeping. We were stunned, right? Mm-hmm. So, of course, Pilate would send somebody to investigate. I mean, it just makes sense. And you'd have to do it from a point of view of, you know, you walk in and, and you'd say, well, first of all, how did that stone get rolled away? With four guards there. I mean, I'm, I, I guess you're right. I should. I can't wait to to see the movie. But the idea of the crime scene, it was interesting. I was watching a video about the Shroud of Turin a while back, and I, the reference to the video is in my in the story. Um, but there was a team of scientists that went to uh, Turin, Italy, to look at and study the Shroud of Turin. And one of the gentlemen, one of the scientists who's now since passed. He relays 
the thing that he was, you know, they studied it for like three days, almost nonstop, right? Mm -hmm. And you have to, if you haven't seen the video, you should you should probably see it. It's a it's a really good video. It does a much better job than what I'm going to be doing here. But he describes this idea of sitting there by himself, trying to piece this whole thing together. And he said there was something odd about the shroud. He just couldn't place it. And after he thought about it, he recognized that what he was seeing on on the shroud was a horrible, mutilated torture. I mean, it was just... It, it, the pain associated with this was beyond almost his understanding. But when he looked at the face on the shroud, the face was serene. Yeah. And he couldn't, he couldn't put the two together. And I'm thinking, <laughs> oh, I can put the two together. This is a guy that, that you know, made his face like Flint. This is part of, you know, the, the Bible. I think it's one of Paul's letters. You know, he just did it. And when he got done with it, when Jesus, you know, passed on and gave up his spirit, he, he said, hey, it's finished. I, I, I pulled this one off. Wow. Yeah, I guess that would be a very satisfying thing. But well, also they examined the, the injuries that seem to be apparent in the uh, in the shroud and uh, analyzed that in terms of what Roman punishment would have been oh, prior yeah. to execution. Uh, one of the things that uh, that we portray here is probably inaccurate is in crucifixion we always show the nail going through the palm of the hand well right. that really wasn't true it was usually put through the wrist absolutely no it didn't go through the palm and it that shows up very clearly in the uh, in the shroud of turin yeah and uh, the injuries as well i mean that that's that's something else uh where the the Romans used a special type of flagellator, I, mm -hmm. I, I forgot the latin word for it but right. it inflicted horrific injuries right yeah, and the thing of it is, if you start to look at it, so from a scientific point of view, when you look at sets of information and try to make a judgment, often the, the information is conflicting. And so in the particular case of the shroud, people have made much of the fact that the carbon dating wasn't, didn't match, you know, first century. It was like 13th century. And on the basis of that, discounted it. Well, most scientists wouldn't discount it right off. They would look... And, well, what could have caused a carbon dating of the 13th century? There was a fire in the shroud about that time. There's also bacterial growth on the shroud, even though there's not a lot to grow on. There's, a, there's like a layer that could have been scraped off, and that could have been analyzed instead of the actual cloth. So the, there's some reason to suspect that the carbon dating may not be quite accurate. But then there's other things. There's like paintings that, that precede this supposed radiocarbon dating that very much suggest that the painter looked at the shroud to get the sense of the painting. And then there's coins that have been struck that also have this sense of, of the shroud. And there's pollen that goes back uh, to the time of the first century. They can, car they can look at the pollen and they can see what kind of plants they were. And the pollen that was associated with around the head of the, on the shroud was a particular unusual pollen. It was a pollen that only blooms in the spring in Jerusalem, and it's also known for thorns. So you see, you start to put all these, these independent facts together, and you start to come up with a judgment, oh my goodness, um, are they all consistent? No. Are they mostly consistent? Well, yeah, very much so. 
And so, you know, if you have to make a judgment, uh, you know, in the story I, I allude to a senior scientist that, you know, wakes up one night and says, you know, if you put all this together, he's risen. And that's really the conclusion. Well, that was also uh, what investigative uh, journalist Lee Strobel found. His wife was a devout Christian. He was an atheist. Oh, yeah. And so he decided he was going to prove through investigative means that Jesus did not exist and certainly did not rise from the dead. Right. Well, uh, (laughs) he converted when he saw the evidence. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, I've read his books. He's he's very good from the point of view of, um, you know, he started as an atheist. And, of course... You know, when I went to, you know, got out of high school having 12 years of Catholic education, which was really good, um, I have to honestly tell you, I I kind of fell away for a few years. I went into uh, Wittenberg University, even though it's a good Lutheran school, I was more into science and learning those kinds of things. Um, and it's very, it's been a very good, for me, walk back towards faith. But I've done it now from a point of view of not only um, the heart, I mean, if you look at the way Jesus had his life and the things he did and, and the words he said and, and the, uh, the way he approached things, it was so, it was so unhuman. <laughs> I don't want to say it that way. Divine. It, 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 was, it was divine. I mean, just imagine him saying to the prostitute, where are your accusers? Well, neither do I condemn you. I mean, to be able to be in that situation where he was in front of a huge crowd teaching in the temple. I mean, this is, you know, the idea, the setting was there's a lot of people around, right? Yeah. So for him to, to kind of do that, that was really just a, re- a remarkable thing. Well, you, uh, in one of your uh, emails to me, uh, you mentioned uh, many of my science colleagues are Christians, so I'm always amused to hear the comment that Christians are anti-science. Yeah. And I love I love how you've approached this in your books. Let the audience know how they can how they can get these books. They're definitely worth reading. Oh well, thank you. Yeah, they're on Amazon.com, and uh, you know, you just search for Dorson. Doctor Dorson, I want to thank you very much for sure. taking the time to share these insights with the uh, listening audience. I find it fascinating that these these things are dovetailing. The more we look oh, at yeah. science, the more it validates what we already know. Well, thank you very much for appearing on the program. All right. Have a great day. World Lutheran News Digest may be heard every Wednesday at 2.30 p.m. and again at 9.30 a.m. Saturday Central Time on Worldwide KFUO. It may also be heard anytime streaming online at kfuo.org. Join us again next Wednesday for another new edition of World Lutheran News Digest. I'm your host, Kip Allen. World Lutheran News Digest is a broadcast ministry of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. WLN Digest is produced through the facilities of Worldwide KFUO. You can also listen to WLN Digest on demand at kfuo.org. To correspond with World Lutheran News Digest, email news at kfuo.org.